Everything in Seven Stories by Andy Jones. Narrated by the author. Story 6. The Fat Canadian. Diary Entry 1. July 17th. Ah, the priest they got here won't get off my case. Keeps telling me it's a good idea to keep a journal and write down all my thoughts. What's the point? Who'll even read them? I took this journal from him and I said, I'll think about it. I think that was good enough for him. He can look into my eyes and see I'm beyond hope. And I'm not after his kind of redemption. It's required of every inmate here at Eli State Prison in Nevada to empty and clear their cell every six months. Just came around again and I spotted this journal. I put it under my bed. It's been there for months. I've completely forgotten about it. I don't know if it's boredom or something else, but here I am, <laughs> making use of it after all. My mind keeps racing. I think there's no point in going over it all endlessly, but I do. I keep thinking. And I keep thinking of how it all started. Was it all planned from the very beginning? Had someone marked my number before I even knew it? Lucy was too good for me. She put up with more shit than a wife ever should have to. She was one of those people who had it all mapped out in her mind. There were great things she wanted to do with her life. And I hope like hell she's getting to do them now. We were married for three years, but... I think it felt like longer for both of us. And finally she told me that she wanted out. Now, I can't blame her, but it was the right thing to do. She could do way better than me, and we both knew it. I'm not mad about that. But it still didn't stop me being pretty damn furious at the time. She struck a nerve. I knew that the end of our marriage was coming, but I was too scared to admit it to her or to myself. I suppose in the back of my mind, I thought it was always going to be me who told her, look, it's been great, but you deserve more than this, yada, 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 and be the real man, break it off properly, or at least be the one to initiate it. But she was the one who told me she'd had enough. She was done, and she didn't even pause after breaking it to me, just started talking about how we moved forward, lawyers, everything. But I wasn't listening anymore. The red mist had descended. This was the only real moment I was going to have to take back some control, so I used it. She was doing everything she could to be calm, ob objective, but I just kept pushing, accusing her of cheating and God knows what else. She lost it. Just like I intended her to. She started throwing all kinds of crap at me. The table lamp missed my face by less than an inch. But I just kept saying stuff. I don't remember it all now, but even at the time, I didn't comprehend it all. It was like an out-of-body experience. I was looking down and seeing myself saying these goddamn awful things to her. Even as I was saying them, I couldn't believe they were coming out of my mouth. Eventually, I stormed out of the house. I mean, for my sake as much as for hers. I was too tightly wound. I didn't know what I would have done if I'd have stayed. Yeah, I'm... Probably nothing, but I couldn't trust myself of that. As I walked over to the car, Jerry, our all-too-perfect neighbor, was watering his all-too-perfect lawn as he caught my eye. Hey, Frank, he said in his usual too-chippy-to-be-a-real-person voice. How's tricks? Go fuck yourself, Jerry, I said, getting into the car. 
I wouldn't see him again until the trial. I wish I could do that whole scene again. My office was uh, a rented dive on East Harmon Avenue, a few blocks from the Vegas Strip. There's eight units in my block, but most of them aren't occupied. There's a liquor store, bail bondsman that I do some jobs for, and my office that says Frank Windsor, private investigator, in the window. But the P from private and the OR on the end of investigator chipped away over time. Probably a rule in the tenant agreement that says I couldn't sleep in the office, but who would know? Either way, without giving it too much thought, my office was where I headed. I've been a private detective for about 15 years, worked with a team of people for about eight years before freelancing on my own, had the office for the last three years or so, and things were going okay. It wasn't a job with any glamour, but work was plentiful in Sin City. I mostly work with bail bondsmen tracking down losers who skip bail or building up profiles and possibilities for the bounty hunters that the bail bondsmen hire to do the real work. I hired my best friend Troy to be office manager. He'd done bits for me on and off for years, and we got on real well. He was always there to help me out, go over stuff I missed, and <laughs> save my ass on more than one occasion. Troy was in the office when I got there. It was a Sunday, but that guy just loved to work. Guess he never had anything better to do. He could tell I got a skimful in me already when I staggered through the front door. I made a detour and picked up a bottle of Jack from the off-license about a block away. I needed it just to... Take the edge off. I was still wound too tight. I hadn't paid attention to the lights, nearly got myself killed near Circus Circus on the way to the office. I laid out on the couch, and Troy made me coffee. Sup, Frank? Shit, Troy, that's it. She's done with me. She's leaving me. When is she going? He asked it. Just like that probably knew it was inevitable even more than I ever did. Now we talked for a bit, but I was just going round in circles after about an hour. Eventually, he said, Screw it, Frank, she'll come around, and if not, then to hell with her, am I right? Come on, let's hit the strip tonight and forget everything, just for tonight. Was everything set up from that moment? I, I can't see how it could be. But somehow, I... I don't know. Somehow it just seemed planned. Diary Entry 2 September 22nd Huh. Didn't realize I'd written so much before. And looked at this journal for a good few months. Yeah, I got my appeal coming up, and the public defender says I should go through everything again, get my story in order, you know? Writing it all down probably helps. I don't know. Can't help thinking that what happened on that night holds a clue that I can't see. I'm a private detective, or at least I was, so I should just get this. There's got to be something I missed. Listing out the events and speculating on what might have happened didn't work. That's why I'm still here. Oh, maybe my lawyer's right. I should just recite what happened. Let them do the clever stuff. It was way past midnight by the time me and Troy wound up in that old gambling house in a dark recess of downtown. 
Every time we stopped somewhere for another drink, we edged further away from the strip. By midnight, we were in the murky areas where only the real gambling degenerates go. I'd never had a gambling issue, though. Not really. It's only if I've had too much to drink. And I guess with everything going on between me and Lucy, it ended up being one of those nights. Troy didn't want to go to that place. There was an old backroom poker haunt that I used to go to, you know, back in the day. Troy had been there before, and he didn't want any part of it. But I guess I must have been aggressively insistent. I didn't want Lucy to get her hands on any of my money, though money was the last thing she wanted from me. All she wanted was a divorce, and I knew it deep down even then. Didn't stop me cashing pretty much everything out of my current account that night. Stupid thing is, that was all just my money. We always had separate accounts, and besides, she even way more than I ever did. But I wanted to have my money in my hand, to feel it and know that it's mine. And I wanted to go into that old backroom poker house and take all the money from those guys that I could. I don't know why. I, I, I just wanted to regain some control, feel like a proper man, something like that. To my surprise and Troy's, I actually did make a little money at first. But it was chump change. Troy kept saying, You've done pretty well, Frank. Maybe you should call it a night. Uh, but I wasn't listening to him. I was going to keep playing until I'd taken every penny from them or forced the high rollers to leave. Over the course of an hour, I had worked my way up to the top table and was still taking money off most of them. I felt indestructible, so I just kept playing. Eventually, all those pussies bowed out. But everyone hung back to watch me play. Everyone, that is, except one guy. There must have been more than 50 people watching my poker game with this guy, but I, I didn't see any of their faces, just his. Fat, smug face with a close-cut goatee beard. I could tell that he was Canadian just by how he, you know, spoke when he asked for a drink or raised the ante. That annoying, whining voice. Couldn't see Troy anymore. He folded almost an hour ago. He might have been standing in the dark behind me, but... I wasn't paying attention to anyone else but the fat Canadian. That's a point. Maybe she was there that night. I never thought of that. I'll mention that to the public defender. Maybe that could mean something. Anyway, it was it was close to, to, to two in the morning. I was losing money hand over fist to this fat Canadian guy. Everyone in the whole joint was watching by now, and I couldn't back down. Every time I got myself a good hand... The fat Canadian kept bettering it. I was down to my last hundred bucks and was going to put it all on the last game, but that fat son of a bitch said, Give it up, old man. Go home. And I snapped. I went for him over the table. I leapt over and I went for his throat. He managed to stand up and get just out of my reach in time. Three private security guys and Troy all interjected, all trying to hold me back, and they were having a hard time doing it. The angrier I got, the louder that fat Canadian laughed. Others were joining in too. I was possessed. I wanted to rip his fat fucking face off. I was still screaming, I'll kill you, you fat son of a bitch, as they threw me out. I was lying in the middle of the road, just off the sidewalk for a good 15 minutes and more. Troy sat with me, probably embarrassed to hell. He had to stop me running back in more than once. I wanted to go back in and stab that fat Canadian in the heart. Maybe I shouldn't have written that last part, I mean. I was wasted, and I, I don't actually remember saying that. 
but most of the witnesses who were there that night testified that I made continual violent threats and consistently ferocious gestures towards that guy. Though he didn't want to say it in court. Even Troy admitted that I had threatened to kill him. And he wouldn't lie about that. He wouldn't lie about anything. Which is why I'm here. Diary Entry 3 September 29th Three days until my appeal. I need to get disciplined with this. I gotta write down as much as possible. I'm thinking about it all in my head too much at once and I I can't deal with it like that. I told my lawyer, Larry Ferguson, that she might actually have been in the poker room. I hadn't thought about that until I wrote it down a week ago and I thought it might help my case in some way. But my lawyer doesn't seem to think so. Not for the appeal, anyway. He said that she's adamant she was at home during that night and the security cameras weren't working in that dive, so there's there's no way of knowing for sure. There's no point even bringing that up, Frank, Ferguson said to me. It'd be just a case of your word against hers. I could tell what he really meant by the way he said it, that in the eyes of the appeal court, I'm already a guilty man, and that if it's a he-said-she-said situation, they'd side with the grieving widow. Makes sense, I guess. But I know she did this. I know she set me up. I know. It was two days after I got into that big bust-up with the fat Canadian. Troy had taken me home. Well, he dragged me back to the office, which was good enough. I woke up on the floor with carpet burns on my face. Spent the next two days watching TV and nursing the hangover from hell. I had lost my wallet. I never found it. Neither did the police in the end, so... I guess I lost it near or in the gambling joint that night, or maybe she found it and that's what started all of this, but... Ferguson says that I should leave the doubting and speculation to him, so I will. I was beginning to feel better. Troy had come in to check on how I was, but I told him to take the day off again. Close the office down and I didn't intend on opening for another week or so. I didn't hear him complain that much. So there I was, a cool damp cloth on my fragile head, willing the headache to ease away and promising myself that I'd never touch a drop of booze again. (laughs) Until the next time. On TV, the news was running a feature all about that new younger pope that died a few months back. I wasn't the religious type, but Lucy, he was a Catholic. Watching it on the TV made me think about her. I looked over to the phone. Maybe I should call her, I was thinking, and apologize for being such an asshole. As I looked at it, the phone rang. I thought it might be her, and I bolted over to answer. My heart sank a little when I realized the female voice on the end of the line wasn't Lucy. She said her name was Amanda Woodson. Her husband was missing, and would I be so kind as to come see her and she tell me all about it? I wasn't in the mood. I told her the agency was closed for a week for personal issues. If her husband was still missing then, call back and I'd help her out. She said she'd pay me 200 bucks just to come over and see her. Huh. What the hell? Why not? After the scene I caused at the poker place a couple of nights back, I certainly needed the money. 
I was on my way out and the phone went again. I was actually surprised this time. It was Lucy. For just a second, I guessed that maybe my wife was calling to apologize. I mean, maybe she'd be the one groveling. I couldn't have been further from the truth. She told me that she was going back to New York. Her father was a big shot at the Marvelox Corporation. He'd called her out of the blue, said they had some trouble at the company, they needed her to smooth over the cracks, or something like that. Either way, they'd offered her a big gig at their public relations department, and she felt it was the right time to go. She said she sought out a divorce lawyer once she was settled, though it hurt like a knife in the heart. I just said, okay, and hung up. Amanda Woodson. The woman who called me up was in the office of the big used car dealership in Laughlin, Nevada. Big Don's Motors. Turns out a missing husband was Big Don. She seemed nice enough. Mid-forties, maybe. Pretty eyes. Great legs. She was pretty flirtatious with me. I was beginning to hope that I wouldn't find her husband after all. She gave me a drink, though it was pretty early in the day, and talked a little about her husband. After a few minutes, she showed me a picture of her husband and my heart started to pound. It was him. Fat Canadian. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. She said they'd been married for about six years, moved down to Laughlin to take over this particular branch of Big Don's Motors about eight months ago when Big Don's father passed away. Big Don Sr. owned a few other minor used car lots in Canada and in the US, but this was their flagship premises. I never knew there was a flagship anything in Laughlin. Big Don Sr. was a battler. He was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia seven years ago, but the tough old bastard kept hanging on. Big Don Jr., my fat Canadian friend, was a real daddy's boy and apparently went to pieces when his father died. She explained that twice before over the last six months he'd go on a drinking and gambling session in Vegas for a few days, and by now he would have holed himself up in some deserted buildings in the middle of nowhere in Arizona look on my face must have given away the question I wanted to ask, because she answered it before I could speak. Don's father bought the old buildings in a foreclosure deal about ten years back, she said, and that's where Don goes to sulk and grieve. It's mostly an old motel with a few acres of land behind. Big Don Sr. never got around to doing it up. He ran into planning permission and zoning problems with the state of Arizona. When my husband has done this before, he's usually taken one of the used cars from the lot. This time, He took a top-of-the-line Cadillac from the lot that I'm supposed to sell to a customer two days from now. If I don't get it back in time, I'll lose 15 grand. She threw the $200 in cash over to my side of the desk. So, will you find him for me or not? You know where he is, I said, picking up the money. So what do you need me for? I don't want to have to look for him, she said her face dropping for a moment before looking me right in the eye again with a renewed confidence. Here's the deal, Frank. I'll pay you three grand to go to that location, pick up the Cadillac, and drive it back here to Laughlin. I nodded. I was never going to get a deal that sweet again in my life. And what about Don? She leaned over to the desk, tears filling in her eyes. Leave that son of a bitch there. It was too good to be true. It really was. During my trial, they found the real owners of that abandoned motel in Arizona. It never belonged to any member of the Woodson family. 
Diary Entry 4, October 4th. I'm not writing this anymore for the appeal or the priest or anyone else. You can all go to hell. I'm writing it for me. Why won't they listen? I'm telling the truth. Can't they see that in my eyes? I took them through it as carefully as I could. I didn't let my emotions get the better of me. I stood firm. My voice didn't waver. I told the truth. Amanda Woodson drove me to the dead town in Arizona, just beyond the Nevada border. She took off as soon as I got out of her car. She said she didn't want to see her husband, the scumbag who drank, gambled, and took off in her Cadillac. I mean, I understood that. Besides, I wanted to see the look on the guy's face as I drove off in the car and left him standing there. Sure, I was driven by revenge, but I ain't a criminal. I popped the address she gave me into my smartphone. It was less than half a mile away, down the straight, lone desert road. I don't know why she couldn't have dropped me off right outside, but clearly she didn't want to entertain even the slightest possibility that she see her fat Canadian husband, and I don't blame her. It wasn't quite noon, so the sun wasn't at its full-on hottest. Besides, I'd be driving back in style with the aircon on full, so I didn't care. There wasn't anyone around as I left the main town. It was a proper ghost town, like you see in the old westerns. Not a soul about for miles. Just me, and minutes down the road, the fat Canadian, Big Don. It was only five minutes later that the buildings came into view. Amanda was right. I could see right away that the buildings formed an old motel stop. Just a bunch of old burned-out one-story buildings, maybe about 30 doors between them, each leading to their own crappy little cockroach motel bedroom. As I got closer, I saw the full extent of the fire damage. Two of the walls from the main reception building were missing. Most of the whole place was gutted. Clearly, Big Don Sr. bought the property for a song. Amanda had explained on the ride over that the owners of the motel and the neighboring land suffered a fire like five years ago when one of the guests was having a party in his room with a couple of hookers. One of them must have dropped a cigarette on the floor and things got out of hand really fast. The old couple that ran the place took the insurance money and got out of there, never to return. Don got the land real cheap. Looked like the fire had happened way more than five years ago, but I guess black burnout fire marks splattered across all the rooms would do that to a place. I walked past the main reception office, just by the tall sign, with broken neon motel lettering, was the car. In contrast to the burnout old place, the caddy was shiny and new. Couldn't have been more than a year old and looked totally out of place amid the rubble of what was once a cheap motel. I hit the button on the spare car key that Amanda had given me, and sure enough, the lights flashed and the car unlocked. This was it. At first, I just wanted to get into the car and get the hell out of there. The old burnout motel rooms were giving me the creeps. Kept wondering if anyone had died there. But then I remembered Big Don. And I wanted to see that fat face, the look of horror and recognition as he sees me driving off and leaving him there. But that didn't stop me running to the car. Once I opened the driver's side, I felt a little safer. I started the ignition and it revved into life. Still no big done. I hit the driver's horn a couple of times. Nothing. 
I got in, I closed the door. The cool breeze from the air conditioning engulfed me. It was getting really hot out there and that icy chill felt good. I looked out the window and hit the horn one last time. Clearly Big Dom wasn't coming out. I was starting to think he wasn't there at all. Nothing felt right and I couldn't put a finger on why. I suddenly had a compulsion to go, get out right away. Put the car in a drive and started to edge away. When the GPS computer on the dash started to glow and beep at me. On the big screen it said, This car has been reported as missing. Please note, we have alerted the authorities to your location. Damn it, I thought. Amanda must have called the car insurance company or something when her husband stole the caddy in the first place. Oh well, hopefully I won't get stopped and we'll get back to her car dealership in Laughlin soon when they can work everything out between themselves. Heading back the way I came, with the long open road ahead and the burnout motel behind me, I started to squeeze the gas. I heard a light popping sound and the car started to swerve erratically. I couldn't compensate. A few seconds later, just before I was nearing the ghost town again, the back end of the car started to swerve. I hit the brake and span 180 degrees before coming to a stop. My heart was pounding. The GPS screen still said, Please stop immediately and wait for the authorities to arrive. There was no way in hell I wanted to do that. I wanted out of here right away. I suddenly wish I'd have taken Amanda's phone number. I opened the door and got hit with the wave of heat that poured in. I walked over to the front of the car and it was clear what had happened. A puncture. Someone had deliberately punctured the right front wheel and applied a little duct tape to it so that it only burst after driving a few hundred yards. The fat Canadian done it? Had Big Don anticipated his wife would come and collect his car? Oh, I didn't want him to win. I wanted to put on the spare and speed back to Laughlin. I went around to the back of the car to pop the trunk and get the spare. I just hoped they had a jack in there too. It took me more than a second to realize what I was looking at inside the trunk. A body. It was Don Woodson. The fat Canadian. Dead. In the trunk of the Cadillac. I let out a cry and fell back. I I just didn't understand. How was he in there? How could he be dead? About half a mile up the road, I could hear police sirens. I knew they were responding for me. Responding to the Cadillac's GPS car alert. Amanda Woodson set me up. Turned out her name was Laura Woodson, not Amanda. None of the Woodson family had ever owned that old motel. But now she'd inherited all three of Big Don's car dealerships in the U.S. as well as seven back in Canada. I kept going over what she must have done. She married Big Don, knowing that his dad was ill and he was going to inherit the family business. The old man lived longer than she hoped for, but when he finally did die, she started to plan. She must have plotted to kill her husband, Big Don. Then one night, saw me threaten to kill him in the poker room, taking my wallet so she knew who I was and what I did for a living. I always carry business cards, killed her husband, drove to that old motel, added a puncher to the Cadillac and placed the duct tape over it. After that, all she would have to do is walk the three miles down to the small town just beyond the motel, take a cab to Phoenix, then a longer, untraceable cab ride to Laughlin, then call the police to say her husband was missing and report the caddy has stolen to the insurance company. 
Then she just needed to make the single blocked call to me from a payphone out of town to tell me to come over, and then... But I can hear myself say these things, and I still can't believe it. So how could I have possibly convinced a jury? My appeal's over. I'm a dead man writing. I'm done arguing this over and over in my head. Lucy doesn't want to talk to me. She's not a Windsor anymore. She's gone back to her maiden name. She's Lucy Adams again. And besides, according to the papers, she's got her own problems with her dad and his company. I'm ready to die. There's something wrong with this world. I won't be around to see it. But I hope it gets better and people somehow figure out... Figure out what I don't have the words for. That was The Fat Canadian. Story 6 from Everything in 7 Stories, written by Andy Jones and narrated by the author. This is a Gold Pictures production. <laughs>